0: This is the Low Tox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low-Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 273. I'm inviting Professor Maury Cohen on to explore systems change options as we search for healthier people and planet. Uh, Dr. Cohen is a professor of sustainability studies at the New Jersey Institute of Technology over in the States. Uh, He is passionate about environmental policy and sustainability and we discuss things like the challenge of reducing overall volumes on consumption, reliance on consumerism and how we can protect people and planet and move to different systems Uh, and we talk about so much more. So a very interesting conversation where I feel like it's more one to get us thinking than give us exact blueprints and what I love about that is in a world that tries to be so reductive on this is that, that is that, choose your team, go out to bat, let's see who wins or on different ideas at the moment, very polarised. Um, Dr. Cohen really shares how nothing is quite that simple and there are many possibilities and it would be interesting to explore X and it would be Uh, interesting if we did Y and you've got to think about if we did do X what the ramification of that might be and I, I really appreciate a conversation like this at a time like this because it actually gets us thinking more deeply rather than thinking too simplistically about the challenges that lie ahead and the many impacts that any decision we make have on a global scale So I'm going to hook into that uh, conversation in just a little minute, but I want to remind you of our wonderful uh, major sponsor, Oz Climate, uh, again, because, A, you get this incredible offer of an extra 10% off their already discounted prices on ozclimate.com.au all year round this year, and your code is LOTOXLIFE. But, B, also because um, we have just had the worst Rains I think I've ever witnessed in my lifetime here in the east coast of Australia and uh, specifically horrific flooding impacting many communities in south-east Queensland and northern New South Wales. Uh, People have died. uh, People have lost everything. And because of more hundred-year floods, and I will say so-called hundred-year floods, there's a few too many too often now to call them 100-year floods, have happened in the past decade or two that mean insurance for flood cover is basically untenable. Uh, It's impossible for the average person to afford. And so when it floods again, we really do lose everything, and uh, I am. In Very grateful to be somewhere very dry uh, in Sydney, especially as someone extremely sensitive to mold, but my heart breaks for the amount of community work and cleanup that's going to need to be done uh, over this next phase and If I can give anyone one piece of advice who lives in a rainy or humid climate right now, please invest in a dehumidifier or go fund me, raise one, raise money for one. If you're someone who's been financially impacted by these floods, see if your council can buy a whole bunch and lease them out to you guys. But it's so important to keep that indoor air humidity 60% humid or under to discourage the growth of mould in the first place. One of the worst things that happens after floods is a very heightened risk of mould growth because things stay wet for too long. And so the minute the waters go down around you, if you are in a flood impacted area, a dehumidifier is one of the absolute best things you can have. If you're just living somewhere that's been very, very rainy and you felt that it was quite damp inside, you can feel a bit of dampness underfoot on the carpet perhaps, um, or just a little bit of sweat in the walls or the floorboards, then get a dehumidifier, stick it in Clothes covered, stick it in bathrooms after showers, stick it in your laundry if you don't have a condenser dryer, uh, stick it in your smallest bedroom if you're finding it really hard to keep everything under 60%. One of my top tricks is to actually put your best dehumidifier, your strongest, biggest unit, into your smallest room in the house and put all the pillows, cushions, sofa inserts, leather goods, everything of that nature that can get damp uh, into that one tiny room so that the dehumidifier can work in that small confined space and really dry everything out. It's much easier than trying to run it through a big open plan space and trying to keep everything dry. So it's my hack uh, if you're somewhere humid um, either now or ever. Very, very useful. So thank you to Climate for being our major show sponsor, and for that wonderful 10% off with the code LOTOXLIFE at the checkout. And if you're not sure which one to get, give the guys a buzz. They're so happy to talk through floor plans, layouts, uh, upstairs, downstairs, let you know what you're going to need to keep everything dry. And they're also very mindful of budgets. So you'll always see them saying, well, don't worry, if you can't afford two, this is how you can work with, this particular one, and that's going to be the most powerful. And then you can move it through your house, and, and all sorts of solutions are given. So thank you, guys. Especially right now, if you're living, if you're listening to uh, the show live, or this month, even uh, it has been a crazy summer of rain. And uh, all I can say is that it is no longer a hundred-year flood or a thousand-year flood, as I even heard one of our politicians say this week. Um, It really does come down to uh, thinking about how we vote and how we can mitigate future destabilisation of climate through really fantastic government policies while all doing what we can on the ground. So without further ado, I'm going to hook into this scintillating conversation that really got me thinking with Dr. Morin Cohen. I hope you
1: enjoy Hello,
0: Maury. How are you?
1: I'm fine. Thank you very much for uh, having me and the invitation to speak with you um, today. I'm very, very
0: uh, interested to see where this conversation is going to go. It's certainly not a light one, uh, but I think there is hope peppered through everything as always. And I'm sure we're going to see that throughout the conversation. So I want to ask you to first up, Mari, Um as a young man, what made you decide that you wanted to try and figure out what was wrong with the world with the way we were headed and how might we fix it? Like were, were there, did you have parents that were in the hippie movement and, they just, and you kind of naturally moved into this or did you, um, uh, like me, have a bit of a, a moment in your teens where it was like, oh, my gosh, I have to be part of the solution. Like I always like seeing how it played out for people.
1: Yeah, no, it's an interesting opportunity to be able to reflect uh, because I think, um, you know, we weave our biographies and things don't just occur by um, happenstance. And so um, in my case, um, my father and his two brothers had a um, business um, here in New Jersey, which is where I'm speaking to you from today, um, in um, the city of New Newark, New Jersey, which is the major was the major industrial center of the state, um, just located about a dozen miles from Midtown Manhattan. Um, and it was a business um, selling um, household goods, um, uh, dry goods, white goods, um, uh, televisions, radios, uh, you know electrical appliances and he had at the peak uh, several dozen people who worked for him on sales routes and uh it was basically what we would think of today as kind of door-to-door selling though the business had a flagship showroom as well um and um uh, selling primarily to um to uh housebound women um who had husbands that would go this was a you know different era it was uh, uh, both uh, both before and after world war ii um where uh, suburbanization at least in this part of the world was beginning to um unfold um and uh these sales guys would go around and sell draperies and curtains and living room furniture tvs um on a uh, on an installment basis so a dollar or two a week and then when they came around to collect and the account balance began to get a little low they would try to sell them something else um and um uh, so I, kind of grew, I grew up in a house where um, um, that was kind of the business model, while at the same time, um, my parents were both very conscious of the ill effects of credit, and I, particularly my mother would keep the credit cards um, you know, locked in a filing cabinet and would oh, only smart take, move. Yeah. take them out on specific occasions when she was you know, heading off on a department store shopping trip and then immediately upon returning home would be put back in the filing cabinet. And I don't think she, they, my parents ever paid a dollar of interest because as soon as the monthly statement arrived, it was paid in full. Um, my so, accountant
0: um, would be very, very pleased to hear such yeah, a story. But, not,
1: <laughs> but not the banker, probably. No,
0: not the banker, though, no.
1: <laughs> so, um, you know, in, in, in trying to, you know, I've thought about some of this stuff um, uh, as uh, as, a, as a means of trying to connect some of the dots in my my, my life and trying to kind of create a coherent um, storyline um, and so I think that was sort of a pivotal moment and so um, I was working in um, at a Research Center in, in, in Oxford University during the 1990s um, it was just after the uh, the Rio Earth Summit which was a pivotal um global event in the politics and discourse of sustainability and um, a lot of the post-Rio conversation was about um, what business was going to do and um, um, nifty technological innovations that were going to save energy and launch us on a more sustainable path and that just never really resonated with me Um, and um and I began actively to sort of think about the flip side of the challenge, that it's not so much about production and producing things more efficiently and uh, with greater environmental regard. Um, that the driving mechanism was really what struck me as utterly insatiable appetites, at least among countries of the global north, um, in, uh, in material consumption. Uh, And um, at the time, you know, and we've sort of seen a couple of different waves of this over the last, oh, more than the last couple of decades, over the last couple of hundred years, where every couple of decades, there's a rise of interest in sort of more aesthetic modes of living, uh, whether it's kind of dropping out of mainstream culture or um, developing, um, alternative lifestyles. You know, we saw that in the 1960s, uh, to some degree. And in the 1990s, the manifestation of that was something called voluntary simplicity, uh, which was a kind of a lifestyle movement. Um, it had its expression, um, in North America. It had its expression in, um, in Australia. And, um, and it was about downshifting. It was about uh, reducing your number of working hours. It was about finding pleasure and enjoyment in um, sort of the simple things in life, family and friends. Not in-
0: so, so. It was yeah. about becoming so, Western European.
1: <laughs> well, even more <laughs> like
0: similar. that Italian, it like Spanish,
1: a, a bit of a retro hippie, mm. um, and it. Um, and it sort of took root in certain social progressive circles here in you know, the, the United States and North America, the sort of Pacific Northwest Coast, places like Portland, Oregon and Seattle and Vancouver, you know, became um, uh, nodes of these kinds of downshifting lifestyle movements. Um, and, um, and so that's kind of where some of the discussion about sustainable consumption first began. Um, It also built off of a a chapter that was part of the foundational document that was produced um, at the 1992 Rio Earth Summit Conference um, that was about sustainable consumption. Um, And it's it's remembered today, um, by those who remember these kinds of things, as one of the most controversial pieces of um, international literature <laughs> um, ever produced uh, because um, there's a practice in international negotiations where when the conferees can't agree on specific wording, they place the existing wording in square brackets.
0: Yeah, And they say, it. all mm-hmm.
1: right, this is something we can't come to agree. Let's move on and we'll find places where we can agree. Um, so in the lead up to the Rio Earth Conference, um, virtually this entire chapter of Agenda 21, as the document was known, um, was placed in square brackets. Um, wow. You know, there was a memorable moment when um, U.S. president at the time, George Bush, senior. Um, there had been several days of debate as to whether um, the American delegation was going to even go. To the rio conference and it was one of those moments that you know we've all seen on television where the president's helicopter is parked out on the white house lawn and the rotors are spinning around and that's the helicopter that takes him to the air force base where he gets on his plane the air force one and travels to wherever he's going and uh george bush this is george bush the father um, had this memorable quote that's where he said um, he was indeed going to Rio, but at no, under no circumstances was the American standard of living up for negotiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You know that was uh, you yeah, know it was it was a different politics of the time and yeah. environmental issues were you know a bit more in the air than they seem to be today, even with the increasing climate crisis.
0: Mm yeah that's that's uh, a little bit of
1: background as to how i've kind of come to to this complex of issues of the relationship between social change and cultural transformation and um the consumer society Mm. and uh what powerful
0: what a powerfully crafted phrase he used george bush senior that you know our standard of living is not up for negotiation so it sounds like he's fighting for you. He's fighting for people. He doesn't want to take things away from you. And so in your mind, you're like, oh, that's the good guy out looking out for me. But what he's actually saying is I am not going to bow down to anyone and I'm actually going to protect my coal lobbyists and I'm going to protect my, all my people that uh, feed my election cycle. And my party, I mean, really. Well, and
1: prior, prior to the Rio conference, the prevailing sort of discursive interpretation in sort of mainstream circles uh, focused on environmental policy and politics, you know, that these are problems that originated in countries of the global south. that it's that that these are problems that emerge because of the reproductive practices of women in developing countries. And that if women could only control their reproductive capacities, that um, global scale problems like ozone depletion and uh, biodiversity loss and so forth, you know, would 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 we be well on the road to recovery? So Yes,
0: if, these big families who don't even have electricity. Yeah, of course, they're ruining the planet.
1: Oh, yeah, convenient framing because you know shifted <laughs> yeah. you know, responsibility onto mm-hmm. the the least powerful actors in the global system, and it gave wealthy consumers in countries of the global north, you know, free pass that. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, from the perspective of today, that you know, a child born in a developing country is going to, over the course of his or her life, you know, consume substantially fewer resources than a child born, on average, in a country like the United States or Australia. Uh, so it, you know, we've, as Pogo famously said, we have met the enemy and he is us. But that's not a message that. Um, it's not great marketing
0: isn't it (laughs) that's
1: not it's not going to win very many (laughs) votes. no it's
0: it's not so so we're going to spend the rest of our time together really picking this apart and and talking about what we can all do personal level political level everything in between uh because our systems are required to change yes um and and so Do you feel from the 90s to now, when George Bush said that, to now, uh, that anything has dramatically shifted in the conversation at the highest levels, or are we still on the same merry-go-round, essentially?
1: Um, I think there has been change. Um, I had a conversation with my undergraduate students one night a week or so ago where Um, they asked me whether I thought things had changed in the last 20 or 25 years. And I, um, well, expressing some ambivalence, I I did come down on the fact that things, yes, have changed and they've changed for the better. Um, This is not so marginal a conversation as it was 20 or 25 years ago. Um, There's certainly a lack of political um, preparedness to engage with some of these challenges but it's it's not far off cuckoo land in the same way that it was um, you know I remember in the 1990s and talking about some of these things and um, one moment in particular where I had um, when I was working in Oxford I had a Japanese colleague um, who um, uh, we found ourselves in a conversation, and I was explaining to him a little bit what I was doing at the time. And um, he was a thoughtful fellow, and certainly these were not ideas that were um, outside of his um, range. Uh, and he looked at me and he says, Oh, I understand. Your intention is to crash the global economy. <laughs> um, and um, I said to myself, Wow, you know, if that's what he's taking away from this conversation, I've got a pretty serious communication problem, <laughs> uh, and and how we talk about these kinds of issues because it's not crashing the global economy, um, and I do think that we've developed a better lexicon and a better sense of um, of, of of political strategy um, in shifting the conversation, you know, away from asceticism and sacrifice and um, um, and um, um, and sort of a reduction in standards of living to a focus on well-being and on creating conditions that enable growing numbers of people around the world to live flourishing lives and to create flourishing lifestyles uh, so you know that's a certainly a step in the right direction. And I think there also has been growing recognition, particularly after the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, with broader social awareness that it is not through consumption and material goods that one is able to cultivate conditions of a good life. you know, you see this in the media, you see it in common conversation, you know, that it's that accumulation as a life project um, on the part of of, of, of um, uh, large numbers of people is, is increasingly come into question. Not that there's been significant change, but there's a change and I think an awareness and a sense of. I wouldn't call it guilt, but a sense of growing responsibility or at least awareness that we can't continue on the same path. And it's not necessarily because of, you know, saving panda bears or, um, or polar bears or other exotic species. You know, it's people, I think, increasingly asking themselves, is this the way I want to live? Uh, and does this bring me... Um, Satisfaction and happiness.
0: Yeah. And I think that relevance at a personal level is crucial. You know, not everybody connects with the issue of extinction of species, as sad as that might be. Uh, it's just a fact. And yet, and so we need to have that relevance at a personal level for people to then, you know, stir that internal pot and think, well, what does that look like for us?
1: Y- yes, and no. I mean, okay. yes. Um, there is a role for personal and individual responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also a role for changing the sort of macro scale infrastructure. Oh,
0: I couldn't agree more. Yeah. um, (laughs) I just want to make it really clear that I'm not saying it's all about us, like changing our electricity provider and not using plastic straws. That's not enough. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, don't worry. I'm definitely on that train. Hmm. Yeah. No, but it's it's you know that. But when one thinks about these challenges collectively, and you sort of measure up the capacity of current governments, um, you know, it's very easy to get discouraged and dispirited, and to say, you know, that road is not going to be fruitful. So I'm going to be the change, uh, and I'm going to mobilize my friends and family and neighbors, and through a process of widening circles you know we're going to catalyze a social movement and that's going to you know power the change Um, you know I think that that's as hopeful and I don't mean to throw complete cold water on those ideas but um, you know the problems are much bigger than 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 any of us Mm. and you know (laughs) until we begin to change transportation infrastructures Mm. and energy infrastructures and the you know the cultural mindset which is manufactured and remanufactured on the on a daily basis by global media organizations um you know it's going to be an uphill climb but Uh, don't
0: we then need the grassroots people to all believe in these movements because at the end of the day that Curiosity that turns into action, that turns into advocacy, changes the voter.
1: As, it, it, as long as people do connect up their personal actions with larger yeah, social organizations okay. and don't see this as an opportunity for withdrawal, mm-hmm. uh, which we see quite frequently.
0: And when uh, you say withdrawal, do you mean like exiting? The system completely society going and living on a farm and
1: well yeah that sort of thing so we're Uh you know two dozen people living on an eco commune you know is a is a nice idea but um it's not really an effective prescription for for social change
0: Mm, and Um, we see this in various ways like um a lot of people think okay well i have to stop eating meat but that doesn't change factory farming for example so, exiting a system doesn't necessarily change the system. Right. And
1: yeah. yeah and, and so, you know, changing regulations and changing mindsets and um, uh, repositioning, in the case of the example you cited, the, the role of meat as a form of uh, status um, acquisition in many parts of the world. Um, you know, that's, um, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a challenging. Um, you know, set of issues to, to engage in, especially when you've got, um, you know, beef producers in countries like the United States and Australia, um, you know, spending, um, you know, millions of dollars on political campaigns and on marketing um, uh, uh, programs, um, you know, in order to uh, celebrate and uh, valorize, you know, meat eating as a indication of social status and, you uh, and, uh, and, 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 achievement. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, I'm, I tend to be rather, uh, dour about, um, you know, much of the enthusiasm around electric cars. Um, you know, even some developments around renewable energy, um, are, um, I think deserve much greater skepticism.
0: Mm. So can we talk about that please? Because, I have a big question mark around uh, electrifying everything in, well, from a health perspective because I've studied energy a fair bit, electromagnetic fields and what that can actually do to biological systems. I'm interested in how that might play out in a negative impact on our health but also in the amount of resources that are required for uh, batteries for uh, and then how they're recycled um, if you actually changed all the cars today, like what would that look like from a mining? Aren't we just mining other resources that are going to run out
1: that are very tricky to recycle? Well, I mean, we seem to be, um, you know, we're caught up in a, in a double challenge, you know, so we're, we're trying to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, uh, you know, at the same time that we're adding um, a very significant new user of, electrification namely personal automobiles um, which is why you sort of see you know this growing mismatch between supply and demand um, and uh, you know before we started uh, to record this segment um, you know we were chatting offline about um, some of the more nefarious practices of uh, of mr. Putin um, and and Certainly here in the United States, there's been much that's been said in recent weeks about the ambivalence of Germany to take a firmer position um, vis-a-vis Russian um, uh, uh, aggression, uh, pending aggression against Ukraine, you know, because Germany's got a problem. You know, Germany has been at the forefront of an energy transition. They've taken their nuclear power plants offline. Um, They've um, 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 made significant strides in um, renewable energy, but they're not there yet. And so for those who have been following the sort of global energy politics, you know, a lot has been um, said and written in recent weeks about the so-called Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is, to deliver Russian energy to Germany and uh, um, and the rest of Europe. Um, the reason this is so pivotal is because Germany is now in a situation where it is deeply reliant on Russian energy, and Putin knows that. And that's the wedge, or one of the wedges that he's using to drive um, a break in um in NATO and in the transatlantic alliance. Uh, So, um, uh, you know, lots of bad things can occur (laughs) as the result of what, you know, we talk about transition and um, it's, uh, it's, it's portrayed and it's taken on board by governments and the public as a kind of smooth glide stream from one state of affairs to another but it's going to be a rocky road uh, and, you know the situation that Germany is currently facing um, you know we don't need to get into a deep discussion about the the, the domestic and, and global politics of it all but it's it's kind of exhibit a at the moment of uh, um, some of the problems that emerge um, I mean we're having and you know I know you are in Australia as well is You know, we have this remnant coal industry that is putting up tremendous opposition to decommissioning coal. Uh, And, uh, you know, in the United States, you know, we could we could buy every coal miner a Cadillac and give them one hundred and fifty thousand dollars grant and call it a day. Uh, But, um, uh, you know, we're, we're we're sort of fighting against bitter enders who were, you know, prepared to engage in some rather radical activity. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going
0: to say unsavory. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I, don't, I think, you know, we've been hearing lots of news the last couple of days about, you know, what's going on with Canadian uh, lorry drivers. Mm. Um, I don't know whether it's reached Australia. There's oh, it been has. Some, yeah. Some, uh, well, that's a, you know, it's here in North America, it's, it's being, you know, framed as, um, as, uh, you know, it's about, about anti-vaxxers and it's about not wanting to wear masks and so forth, but there's also a kind of energy politics that's undergirding it as well. Um, mm. that, uh, um, and we see this in terms of supply chain constraints. I mean, I think this is, you know, these are not unrelated to some of the other things that we're, we're talking about and
0: Yeah, Um, and I think it's a shame. I think it's a shame that we've become a headline society that just reads little sound, like you know, listens to a soundbite, watches someone's opinion on Instagram for five seconds, (laughs) uh, and you know, wraps something up really easily into being about one issue. When really, if we went deeper, we would see there were much bigger issues at play. Uh, So, can I come back to my question around electrification of all the vehicles and? You know, I think, I, are we missing the fact that we should actually just create much better public transport?
1: A public transport and just drive less. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly, right? So when you go to Paris, for example, or London, you can get around these enormous cities in such an easy fashion. It is an incredible system that was built such a long time ago. And I feel like uh, we are really missing the point here on we don't need to just it's kind of like if you're eating a ton of ultra processed food. Right. And you know that you need to change, but you miss the piece where you're supposed to actually change to eating fruits, veggies, meats, nuts, seeds, uh, eggs, etc. cetera. And instead you just buy the organic Oreos and then the organic cheesy puffs. And, you know, you switch everything to still being processed foods, which doesn't fix the health problem. Are we therefore having the same blockages of consciousness, if you like, on what we really need to do to create lasting change?
1: Uh, We're in many respects our own worst enemies and we dig our feet in deeply. uh in order to um, avoid having to change, I mean, to bring it onto a personal level and, um, you know, think of all of the mental trip, tricks that people play on themselves when they're on a diet. Um, uh, all right, I won't eat lunch, but then I'll say, you know, there's sort of these heuristics that we use to... Sort of balance things out and create equations. So if I don't eat lunch, well, that gives me license to eat a bigger dinner. Um, and if I'm um, and people do this all the time, if in um, all kinds of incommensurate ways. So somebody is due to take an, uh, a flight next week, so they say to themselves, "All right, I won't eat meat. Um, I'll avoid meat for two nights." You know, over the <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that'll that'll kind of you know equal things out. Um, and, um, you know, we play these kind of crazy games, uh, in order to avoid, um, you know, recognizing that, um, uh, that consumption reduction is a, you know, is the, is this, is the, is the elephant in the room. And nobody wants to look that elephant in the eye because, you know, to consume less, um, in many people's minds speaks to, um, you know, a lifestyle, an inferior lifestyle um, um, that, you know, we sort of live in a war in a world of where, where more is more and, um, you know, um, less is more um, is suggests, you know, sacrifice and, um, and humiliation.
0: Mm. and yet I think, you know, I teach in this space at, a, um, at an everyday people level, not at <laughs> a professor level in a university. And I think one of my favorite switches that people really kind of go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I do get just as much joy out of that is like think about that time that you're just feeling a bit down and you reach for the ice cream or you reach for the online shopping experience, you buy yourself a new dress And you have that moments like rush and happiness, uh, but it quickly fades. Maybe it peaks again when the thing arrives uh, or where you reach for the tub again. But then picture yourself walking on an ocean cliff walk with your best friend and the conversations you have and you make each other laugh and you have a big hug and you get all that gorgeous oxytocin. That's much more lasting. You feel great for the rest of the day, if not the week. That cup was really filled up. and. And I think, uh, you know, if we think about the disconnection issues people are feeling, isolation, mental health challenges, um, human connection is actually going to satisfy that itch in a way far more deeply and permanently than any item ever could and and so I get people to look at their diaries on a Sunday night. I'm like, okay, what have you got in the week that you are genuinely looking forward to? That is going to fill your cup up, really make you feel satisfied and happy, and connected to something bigger than yourself. And that is catching up with people that you love or doing work that fills you with purpose. Um, these aren't consumer oriented things, but it's almost like we've forgotten to that the stuff of life. You know, and uh, it's it's been sold and packaged to us in a different way, and we're now stuck in that loop instead.
1: Yeah, but uh, you know, unfortunately, what you've just described is not something that somebody is going to spend a million dollars. No, it can't be productized on the, on exactly. the American Super Bowl. No, uh, so it can't be monetized and commoditized in quite the same way as uh, as. Uh, you know a new car a new box of cornflakes or um, you know a diamond ring uh, so um, you know that's the that's the that's the the dilemma to the extent that you know people are responsive to what they um, are exposed to through communication and media uh, that these sort of less resource intensive social practices and, and lifestyles um, uh, you know we we can whisper to one another about, but they, um, you know, they don't have a large megaphone in the same way that consumer products that are, um, that are, uh, you know, making money for different players up and down the supply chain. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So, So, so obviously we need, we need to consume less and we, but, but so how do we actually change this on a systems change level? Because, you know, and again, we talked about this offline. I was saying we seem to in the past have needed these big war-like cleansers, you know, huge fisticuffs in fields, bullets flying through the air, bombs being dropped to realise what's important in life and to calm down and to love each other more. And, you know, uh, to, you know and then the, the years that follow, we're rationing things, we're building back up, we're being very resourceful and we're resilient right? And now it looks like things are bubbling at the surface, but can you please reassure us that we don't need another world war to remind us what's important this time? Like, how do we do it in a way that doesn't lead us to huge conflict?
1: Well, I'm not sure I can offer the, uh, the, the confident assurance that you're, you're looking for, but mm-hmm. if we take a system's view yeah, um, that um, transitioning from an increasingly obsolescent and um, 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 dysfunctional system to something new, um, you know, is not necessarily going to happen smoothly. Um, Talking here about um, uh, uh, reorganization of political priorities and who loses and who gains and uh, who reaps the economic rewards, um, you know. The losers of this transition are not going to go away quietly. Um, they will fight tooth and nail in order to maintain the prerogatives and um, and um, of the of the, the system that is that is currently in decay. Uh, and um, you know the dilemma is is that they continue to have their hands on the um, institutions of the current age and the new system is emergent, um, nascent, um, it's embryonic. Um, you know, we're talking to each other, but um, you know, this is not part of a, of a segment that's going to be aired on Fox News, and um, uh, and um, uh, you know, so yes, we're part of this um, embryonic niche based. Bubbling up, but um, you know, we're still finding each other, and that what we're talking about is in direct contradiction to the operational rules and um, um, infrastructures of the prevailing system. Uh, Most people, maybe not the listeners of this podcast, but if you go out a little bit further to a broad audience, you know, people are going to view much of what we're saying is kind of discordant and, and, and out of sync with what their life aspirations are. Uh, and um, um, it's going to take some erosion, of, further erosion, of these dominant, mainstream infrastructural subsystems to um, create windows of opportunity for these new shoots <laughs> Uh, to take hold and find fertile soil to to grow and, and prosper. Uh, you know, you'd think that we've been at this for 50 years, <laughs> uh, longer, and that um, these uh, institutional forms would have come into existence. And they do exist, but, you know, the renewable energy industry is doesn't have the same political power as the Australian coal producers do. Um, and uh, it's going to take you know further growth and development of these niche-based innovations um, to find one another, to recruit financial resources, to become sort of savvier in how they communicate with the rest of the world. At the same time, the existing system is going to have to go through a much more profound process of, of of decay uh, and, and that means disruption so you know in a lot of theories of innovation disruption is heralded as this you know great and wonderful thing but it also you know has another side where people's lives are upended um and, uh, to think that we're going to be able to um now navigate- to catch
0: everyone through a transition fairly yeah
1: Well, not everybody yeah it's not that's it's not everybody gets a trophy. Um, some people are going to be, um, you know, seriously upended by that. And um, some will be people in positions of power and influence and others, you know, unfortunately, are going to be um, caught in the wheels of change uh, and uh, be sort of left to their own um, wiliness and resources to try to cope the best as they can.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I want to ask you about polarisation and um, loggerheads because it feels like right now, you know, we actually started this conversation with your example of United Nations coming together and when you can't agree on something, you just put it in uh, a big bracket box and come back to it later. I feel like literally no one can agree on anything moving forward and finding overlaps right now in anything We can't seem to allow people to debate on the public health stage and see differences of opinion of the best minds in that field. We seem to not be able to allow that to happen. Some of them get censored because we have to just do it one way because that's the safest. Or we have everybody fighting each other about the right diets instead of looking at different forms of farming and how we could maybe actually support great farming methods and then everybody might be able to eat you know, the certain way that works best for them. We see it in politics where people are less and less coming across the aisle on issues that would absolutely benefit the community if political leaders actually held out a branch and came together on stuff. How do we move away from being this culture of outrage and defiance against the other whoever we've labeled as the other and actually start having more constructive conversations again, because I feel like when that feeds into what we're talking about, we might actually be able to get somewhere.
1: Um, I'm going to come at that from a slightly different angle in the sense that, you know, it may very well be that we are in the midst of this transition and the discord and the, um, the, the anger and the um, sense of, of, of ground shifting underneath people's feet is, is part of that transition occurring. You know, I find it sometimes interesting to reflect on the fact that, you know, for those who have studied the history of the Industrial Revolution, you know, we generally think of the Industrial Revolution as beginning around about 1750 There were sort of um, what might be thought of as proto developments of industrialization that occurred some decades and even centuries before that. Um, But um, the term industrial revolution, which we take for granted today, um, didn't emerge into um, sort of popular, um, then become part of the lexicon, even amongst. kind of academics who were interested in these kinds of things until um, well over a hundred years later. uh, You know, people were attentive to the fact that change was in the air and that people's lifestyles were being upended and that families that had been living agrarian lifestyles for centuries were being uprooted and sent into or moving to burgeoning cities and working in um, um, uh, satanic industrial facilities, uh, factories. Um, But, um, you know, it wasn't until there was enough perspective of 100 years of that process that kind of recognition began to build that, oh, my gosh, something truly transformational has occurred in this, hundred long year period between 1750 and 1850. Um, For people who study um, uh, long range change or waves of innovation, um, it's long been thought that um, the sustainability transition and sustainability revolution um, would have occurred on the basis of historical precedent in the 1990s um, and that by that logic um, we're sort of 30 years late <laughs> uh, in this in the arrival of the sustainability transition and so we can then begin Well, why is it late um, and there does seem to be a certain regularity over the last 200 or so years of of, um, of economic history of, as one wave of innovation systems begins to decline, you know, another is sort of sitting back off stage, ready to be sort of ushered um, on stage. Uh, but um, that, 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 the periodicity or the regularity of that process seems to be, have broken down over the last 30 years. And, you know, the question is, well, well why? Um, You know, if there are these kind of deep logics, you know, embedded in social and economic and cultural systems that have demonstrated this particular pattern over time, um, why is it breaking down now? Um, And, uh, you know, part of the argument is that we had a window of opportunity, especially after the financial crisis. we, we, we dropped the ball, <laughs> that we, we were not ready. And so um, um, it was, you know, you know the, the the aphorism of never let a good good crisis go to waste. Um, we let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and, you know, here, at least in, you know, the United States, we've, you know, managed to straggle through the Trump era um, and, um, you know, had... Had had the Democrats in um, in the United States uh, secured a more definitive political victory in 2020, um, you know, and we didn't have a situation where, you know, but the balance of power is resting on a razor's edge, and Democrats in um, in the Senate, in particular, can't afford to lose even a single vote. Uh, uh, you know, things could look, at least from my vantage point, you know, um, could be looking a bit different. You know, had, had 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 Joe Biden not faced these inordinate political challenges of moving his legislative agenda um, through the U.S. Congress, um, you know, the conversation that we're having could, would probably be a bit different, a bit more uh, hopeful. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, and now this, you know, if you read the tea leaves, it seems that that moment, that window of opportunity is closing.
0: Yeah, it does. That,
1: you know, the forces of progressive change only get a chance, you know, once every 50 years. Yeah. And, um And that that opportunity is, you know, perhaps now now slipping away and who knows how long we'll have to wait.
0: Um, and do you feel that might then mean that, uh, America becomes uh, a country on the back foot of change and perhaps there may be other countries around the world that will start to lead in a way that we've traditionally seen the states being leaders on?
1: Uh, that's a great question, especially the, you know, we're talking here in the middle of the, um, of the Beijing Olympics where that's certainly the narrative that, our, um, that the Chinese government would like to convey. Uh, that, you know, the United States has seen better days and that uh, this is the rise of China, and the, the rise of, of, of Asia and, um, uh, you know, some of the controversies that Australia has recently found itself in over the past six months, you know, are very much part of that realignment um, and process of, uh, of sort of ruptural change. Um, but um, yeah, that's a you know that's the 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 five million dollar question um, to whether um, you know whether what we're seeing in the United States and the United States isn't unique. I mean, you look at what's going on in the UK these days is not so similar um, uh, that um, um, you know it may be the case ten or fifteen or twenty years from now. You know, we'll look back on and, on the current era and see that you know this is this is when the rupture was was occurring. Mm. This, Retrospect this, is a
0: beautiful thing, isn't
1: it? But we don't but have it right now. You know, it's a bit you know in the midst of it right now. It's easy to sort of anticipate dark futures where it's all going to get a lot worse, um, and um, you know it's much harder to envision you know, these days. You know, at least from where I sit. You know, an optimistic future, but sometimes you know history has a funny way of um, turning things on its head. Uh, you know, we would have, if we were both living during the um, the 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 Great Depression that began in 1929. You know, we would not have seen that as planting the seeds of a. Um, of social democracy and social progressivism, you know, in much of the world. Uh, but sometimes the lights have to go out, you know, before um, you know forces of, of of change can really begin to to mobilize themselves. And there's there are different visions, you know, out today. Uh, there's a you know there's a, a starkly autocratic vision um, that is about um, you know. Um, uh, desperate white people retaining power, and there are more um, um, uh, diverse and uh, arguably hopeful visions that, um, you know, seek to uh, to chart a different, different, different course. Um, but um, you know, it's maybe not that different from you know, for those who were students of American history, you know, during the middle of the 19th century when there were deep and ugly violent debates uh, going on about um, slavery, which was, you know, about tension of a degraded and um, and increasingly obsolete and unethical economic system. Um, now, we tend to think about it as an issue of human rights, of which certainly it was, but it was also, you know, about a, an economic system that had a its own logic to it that was under strain and um, and um, you know uh, 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 you know evolving in a in a direction towards towards change.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and so I wanted to ask. It's kind of come up almost a couple of times about business and uh, and change, and we see a lot of innovative companies embracing circular business models. Uh, We see, you know, a lot of products being made from recycled ocean plastics. Um, How much do you think business can play a role? I mean, we see the glorification of business at events like Davos, but really I think that is about productizing and keeping super rich people super rich. Usually I'm I'm a little bit jaded by those kinds of conferences and they usually tend to be about power and control, um, even though that's not how they're marketed or presented. But how important is it for small business, medium business and large business to feel like we can be part of the change without also then creating new problems and just fueling more infinite growth that will also not be possible. I, I don't even know if I'm I'm making sense in what I'm asking you, but
1: I, I well, feel it like. It requires business to sort of fundamentally rethink their yeah. business. And the prevailing business model, to put it in stark terms, has been to sell ever more stuff. Yeah. As a means of enriching shareholders um, and, you um, um, um and, uh, uh, and 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 moving to a business to an alternative business model that is perhaps based on um, enabling people to achieve and earn livelihoods by selling less stuff sound incredibly counterintuitive. Um, but um you know, there are some examples of it. I mean, there, there are electric utility companies that generate income by assisting their customers to save energy, use less energy, rather than use more. There are companies like, you know, like, like Patagonia. And, you know, it's it's kind of easy to make fun of because it's so upside down relative to kind of prevailing thinking. but. You know, there was a moment several years ago um, on, um, you know, what is famously known as as uh, as as Black Friday in the United States, the, the the day after American Thanksgiving in the month of November, um, and uh, and and Patagonia took out a full-page ad that had one of its famous fleece jackets under a headline that said, "Don't buy this jacket," um, and. Ironically, if you listen to the cynics, um, you know, Patagonia's sales after that ad and the ensuing sort of social media frenzy that took place, their sales increased. Uh, And so, you know, again, the cynical interpretation is that there was some great marketing genius sitting in the basement of Patagonia who sort of thought up this evil genius scheme. But you know what we've seen is that you know Patagonia is a unique company, has um, as a, as a unique legacy, um, uh, it uh, has a celebrated founder. Um, but you know, to take a more optimistic view of this, they're 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 trying to figure out, you know, how can you be a um, a, a global apparel company. Um, where your business model is predicated on providing service to your customers, not pushing more stuff out. And so, um, you know, again, it's emergent and these are, you know, experimental kinds of things going on. But, you know, so uh, so Patagonia has been at the forefront of um, of having um, its customers um, sell back or donate. Um, secondhand clothing that it then sells on its website uh, and beginning to create something of a, of a closed loop um, or circular um, flow of its, of, its, of, its, uh, of its clothing.
0: As well um, as creating the connection piece, right? You know, that is a people like us do things like this. Seth Godin example where you then create this community of people who feel connected by this unified mission to do a bit better.
1: Well, I mean, I think even among, you know, the sort of the global fashionistas, um, you know, secondhand clothing, thirdhand clothing has lost a lot of its stigma. Mm, you know, it you has. See, uh, famous models and fashion designers, uh, you know, recycling textiles and uh, appearing in, um, in, um, in public events, uh, you know, in secondhand clothing. I'm not such a big fan of the clothing rental. Model, which has gotten a lot of attention, at least in some circles, as a "quote-unquote" sustainable solution. I'm not convinced by that, but you know, it—you um, know—breaking the connection between um, ownership and what I call usership is an important step. It's not always going to be successful, but. Um, you know, the sort of the personalization of our consumption goods, where you need to have your own car, and your own washing machine, and your own wardrobe, and your own pair of shoes, and so forth. Um, You know, that that diminishing that connection, and seeing goods as being part of a um, of a collectivized community, um, I think is an important step along the way. And yeah, so Patagonia has crews that travel around to communities with uh, with uh, with staffs of seamstresses. That that you know, you've got a hole in your jacket, you bring it there and they'll repair it. I don't know if it's a fee or they do it for free, but um, you know, it's not only great publicity; it's shifting people's mentality that you know, just because something might be broken or torn or um, you know, it's not necessarily obsolescent.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh,
1: You know, there was just an article last week in the New York Times about how Malaysia has become the global center for processing secondhand clothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, speaking to the, that sort of the old practice of of, uh, donated clothes being bundled up into bales and shipped to, um africa africa or, yeah um you know that that's not that it's gone away but it's you know that that business model is now shifting
0: mm. uh, well you can buy business cards made out of old people's t-shirts now the cotton gets used to turn it into a paper material and it's
1: there's a lot well, of innovation clothing, clothing being manufactured out of you know as you said um, reclaimed plastics um, so, yeah, I mean, is it going to save the world in and of itself? Yeah, probably not. But it's, you know, it does speak to, um, you know, that that these are entrepreneurial opportunities that people are seeing, and rather than, um, you know, go to work for the for the currently dominant um, um, apparel manufacturers, you know, people who have those skills and those interests are finding opportunities um, elsewhere, you know, people have, and they've got to, you know, they've got to pay the rent or pay the mortgage. So, um, you know, to the extent that people can creatively find um, new footholds in a sustainable economy and, um, you know, get along and perhaps even thrive is, you know, an indication perhaps of change. Mm.
0: And do you think that that might mean that it is possible for us to transition somewhat more peacefully than we have in previous cycles of awareness and, uh, and cleansing, if you like.
1: Well, I don't know the, the fast fashion industry since we're talking about fashion and I've been working lately with a couple of designers at the Milan Polytechnical on a project on the future of fashion. So I may not be the most fashion forward person, but I can think some of these things, but, um, you know, the, the, the paragon companies of the fast fashion model are not going to, you know, um, shrivel up and disappear. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's Zara or H&M or, you know, whatever, um, you know, they'll try to make some incremental changes around the edges of their business model, but, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure that they're able to fundamentally reinvent themselves.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, again, we then think of the jobs that would be lost. Uh, You know, the fashion industry has at least done some really good work to clean up the production lines and to pay people a fair wage in whatever country they're working in. There have been some obviously pushed at the um, grassroots level because people were horrified to learn about the truths in that industry, but it has largely improved over the past decade. And I feel like we have to address the fact that if everybody stopped buying their Zara or their h H&M, and we would then have whole swaths of developing country workforces um, flushed into poverty overnight and that's again we you know talk transition we have to speak about the the bigger picture realities of what that looks like if we do it
1: overnight or if we do it real quick without a plan yeah no, i mean it's it's easy it's too easy to sort of beat the global fashion industry over the head for you know exploiting women in developing countries but the you know the reality is is that um in countries like bangladesh and in vietnam and in india um it has provided an important source of employment and um and lifted tens of millions hundreds of millions of households out of extreme poverty mm. uh, and um you know the pandemic has had profound implications yeah um, i was
0: going to ask you about the the implications yeah, i don't know the numbers
1: off the top of my head but you know uh, um, the, uh, the disruptions that the uh, that the, the global supply chains of clothing and apparel have experienced have had very significant um, impacts on communities where um, clothing is being being manufactured. And mm-hmm. you know now these calls for reshoring um, uh, textile and clothing manufacturing um, uh, uh, you know speaks to a another phase of reorganization and realignment. Um, that's uh, that's occurring, but um, you know, it's frustrating to, to, to come to the realization that the way that we're currently providing livelihoods to um, uh, precarious communities in countries of the global South mm. um, by hitching them to the fashion whims of affluent consumers in the global North, yeah, uh, you know, is you know seems to me kind of maniacal Mm. yeah
0: Yeah. wow and in terms of the pandemic what else have we seen when it comes to sustainability because it feels like so many people have made some big changes we've taken steps forward in uh, certainly reducing plastic waste but then you now see single-use masks uh, on street corners overflowing bins and It can make you just feel like, and the the, uh, rapid antigen tests, my goodness, you know, our kids in Australia right now having to do two a week. Uh, So you imagine how many, you know, how many millions of kids there are in our country doing that. The plastic waste seems to have gone through the roof again. And how do we, um, it's, it's almost like we just, because there's a crisis, we go, well, nothing matters anymore. It's just dealing with the crisis. And, and therefore all the rules go out the window because we've got the excuse of the crisis to not think sustainably about how we might approach that. Um,
1: when are we going to learn? Well, uh, again, I think it's still too early to tell what the impacts of the pandemic are going to be. Uh, I don't know exactly what you know, aside from what I read in the newspaper, what's going on on, on your doorstep, but, you know, where I am, um, large numbers of people are continuing to work at home. Uh, mask mandates are now beginning to go away. Um, uh, we've had a series of kind of false target dates as to when, quote unquote, business is going to get back to normal, um, you know. I still travel from home to my university campus on trains that are sparsely populated. Um, uh, business car parks and office complexes still remain largely empty. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any real urgency, uh, at least where I see, it, to, to get people back to work in the conventional sense. Um, you know, if anything, um, There is now, usefully, you know, efforts to um, uh, institutionalize and make more permanent um, remote working arrangements. Uh, So uh, I think at least for probably about a third of the working population, those that have the quote-unquote luxury of being able to work from home, you know, the five-day work week is probably a historical relic. whether, you know, that's going to mean are people going to go to the office one day a week, one day a month? Um, are they going to work from home? What's going to happen to, you know, some of the infrastructure around co-working and co-living spaces has been is there. Uh, um, you know, uh, I think at some point people are going to grow tired of sitting at their home computers wearing their bathrobes and their slippers. Um, but. Um, uh, you know, And I think that that freedom and that flexibility has been you know, hugely important, for pe- particularly for people who are at the, the forefront of what sometimes gets referred to as the care economy. Um, and, you know, the care economy two years ago was completely invisible, um, whereas now it's right out there front and center. Um, so, um, you know, I think that's going to have to be, you know, reconciled in a big way. You know, it's hard to anticipate and predict what's the world is going to look like five years from now. Um, and, um, you know, the pandemic has also accelerated what were already ongoing processes of digitalization. Um, so, um, 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 you know, that's going to continue. Um, uh, I think we're looking at a massive new wave of automation and robotics and artificial intelligence that's going to displace people from their jobs. You know, we may be looking at a future whereby the sort of conventional ways in which people quote unquote earned a living, you know, by going to a job and collecting a wage, um, that may become less standardized in the future. Um, may have to invent new, um, means of public provisioning, you know, whether uh, some people, you know, we talk these days about universal basic income um, or sort of tapping into the revenue streams that are being generated by robots and bursting those out to people who were previously doing those kinds of jobs. Uh, so, um, you know, that's that's sort of a sleeper issue that's fallen a little bit off of the minute we had a big wave of automation after the financial crisis. Um, And, um, you know, now that we're sort of looking at circumstances where wages are now increasing, um, businesses are gonna be looking for other cost cutting measures, they can't find employees. Well, maybe I'll look at some kind of automated um, system or, you know, robotic substitute. Um, You know, I think that's one of the consequences of- Of of, of change, yeah of the, um, the sort of unsettling conditions that have been created in its kind of emergent aftermath.
0: Mm. And I'm always fascinated by what, uh, what change like robotics in the workforce brings about in terms of countercultures and, and new innovations. I mean, like if you had said NFTs to a person, we're going to become this valuable commodity <laughs> and like we're all going to be buying stuff that doesn't even exist Uh, and uh, parking like a new little artwork, a digital artwork by an upcoming artist that's then going to be, it's almost like I feel like we have this interesting opportunity to, and I talked to a guest about this last year, to become a culture of the mind and to really uh, bring back the value of intellectual uh, thinking and entrepreneurial opportunity and art uh like wouldn't that be amazing if that's what comes out of all of this
1: yeah no it's um you know as long as people are able to put food on the table and, and pay the rent through some of the um uh that that becomes a sort of realistic possibility and it may not be that people will be able to devote themselves to that five or seven days a week but maybe they devote themselves to that two days a week uh, i had a project uh before that was just getting off the ground when the uh, when um, pandemic lockdowns uh, were first instituted on, um, on uh, sort of emergent work practices centered on what gets referred to these days as digital nomadism. You know, these are, well, it's not just 20-somethings, it's much broader age cohort than that, but people who are doing digital work, um, whether it's marketing programs or designing websites or um, teaching English, um, you know, that's, that's not tethered to a specific location, you know? So, you know, the, the prototypical example is the, you know, uh, guy or gal who's sort of sitting on a beach in Bali, you know, while doing digital labor for a s- subcontractor who's based in New York or Silicon Valley. Uh, and, you know, that was, you know, pre-pandemic a kind of exotic and, um, um uh, and, and sort of celebrated alternative lifestyle. But, you know, most people didn't really see that as something that was realistic for them. But you now we've got thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of people who have been told by their employers that they can continue working for as long as they want for those companies, but they never have to come to work again. Um, if I was in that situation, I'd probably get on a plane and go somewhere, take advantage of what sometimes gets referred to as lifestyle arbitrage. So in a low-cost um, place like um, um, Thailand or Vietnam and, uh, you know, and, and earn at a, um, a metropolitan salary in London or New York or San Francisco, uh, that's, that's not unrealistic. I mean, it, it's, that's, that, that could increasingly become the norm where this, the co-location of where we work and where we live um, you know becomes completely broken now um, well, there was a time 50 100 years ago where you know suburbanization was a sort of radical notion the idea to live 20 or 30 miles from your place of employment and commute by car you know, that was that was that was that was that was an innovation at the time whereas we could at you know, sort of suburbanization, if you want to even call it that, occurring on a global scale. <laughs> uh, um, and, um, um, and I mean, that could end up turning out to be one of the long-range consequences of the, of the pandemic that sort of severed that connection and everybody works in their own kind of home industrial cottage. <laughs>
0: mm. Which then has some fantastic implications when you think about sustainability. People moving around less, requiring less resources to get to and from places.
1: Yeah, right. more uh, interesting. More. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, true. True. You know, the future of the world does not necessarily play out in accordance with sustainability principles. Mm. You know, that there are other forces far more powerful that are sort of shaping our destiny. Um, and, uh, you know, giving rise to new alternatives, you know, sometimes we may frame them as sustainability-focused or sustainability-motivated, but, you know, that's not. Uh, to live a more sustainable lifestyle is not the the life objective of the vast majority of people. Yeah. unfortunately.
0: And so, mm-hmm. therefore, as a professor of sustainability uh, and as someone who's a human who I would say has hope in their heart for some of the good that they would like to see and that looks quite possible uh, from some perspectives, what fills you with hope?
1: What fills me with hope is, um, um, I mean, I think you have to be hopeful just by natural wiring um, that otherwise we would just wake up in the morning and. Pull a blanket over our head and stay there for the day. Um, you know, I do from time to time have people ask me that question: How can you remain hopeful, um, or, or isn't sort of hopefulness in this in the in a in an era of such um, unrelenting darkness just a form of naivete? Um, but I don't think so. I mean, I mean, history tells us that we have to envision. Alternative futures in our individual and collective minds um, before they take on a, a manifest tangibility. So talking before about the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, for a couple of hundred years there were far-sighted thinkers who were imagining what um, the replacement of human labor with Industrial machines might look like. Um, and, um, I think, by 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 analogy, you know, similar work going on for us to um, uh, sort of collectively imagine um, uh, what the future may be. Um, uh, I don't think we should underestimate, you know, muse- you've talking before about life of the mind, but I don't think we should en- underestimate the role that Art and museum exhibits, and uh, um, you know, and other um, sort of cultural forms have in laying the groundwork. Um, you know that, uh, that that General Motors and others had to first anticipate what an automobile society was going to look like before it got built out. So that's uh, that's the project that I think we're in, we're all engaged in
0: these days. Mm, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Murray. I think this was such an interesting conversation. Uh, I'm always so fascinated by people who are discussing this on a daily level, studying it, learning from young people coming through universities and their ideas. It's always so interesting to see what the possibilities are, but also what the constraints and challenges are. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to share
1: your thoughts on this. No, well, it's been delightful. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation we've had and uh, it's been terrific. Thank Brilliant. You.
0: Well, thank you. Have a beautiful evening from where you're tuning in in New Jersey and uh, I really look forward to sharing this with the audience. Bye, Murray. Great. Great. See you. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart S T U A R T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the Explore tab and you'll see join the lotox club as your very first option there i hope to see you in there if not i will see you in our wider community sometime soon
1: thanks again for tuning in